Hi, I'm Samuel Donner. This is Finding Founders, and we're back with part two of Krista's story. If you haven't heard part one, go back and listen to it. It's great. If you are new here, please leave a review and hit subscribe. We post episodes every Thursday. We left off in part one with Chris's future uncertain. He had just gotten rejected from every school he had applied to. I wasn't that heartbroken because I didn't think I was good enough to get into those schools. You weren't heartbroken. What did your parents think, though? I was dreading that conversation because if you don't go to college, what do you do? Do I just become a plumber? My brother tells me, go to community college. It's cheaper. Get your grades. Go to whatever school you want. So I don't know what my parents think, but they are open to the idea of now me going to community college and the idea of art center has become real. So when you say you don't know what your parents think, do you feel like you didn't have the open relationship with your parents where you could get that kind of feedback from them? Yeah, in Asian families, we don't talk about our feelings, especially the men. And I think it's just, I'd rather just let sleeping dogs lie. I didn't really want to have that conversation with my dad. I felt ashamed. And I felt bad because he would be ashamed. Maybe getting rejected from those colleges was fate, steering him off the trail of expectation, but towards a path of fulfillment. The ride was bumpy. Chris felt an intense shame for letting down his parents. But a traditional college education wasn't right for Chris. No, Chris had a higher calling, his mecca of art education. Without knowing whether this pilgrimage would culminate in the enrollment at Art Center, he embarked on his journey. The first leg was community college. So my brother is going to UCSD and he's applying to grad school. So he's going to be here for another year. And he's a kid, look at the catalogs. So I look at Mesa College and San Diego City College. And I look through them. I go straight to the design and art. I'm looking, looking, nothing interesting. San Diego City College, commercial art one. Like that's it, highlight, boom. What's that, Tuesday at three o'clock? I'm going to be there. I'm going to register for this class. I think the second or third week of school, an art center alum comes to class. His name is Luis Fitch. He had just graduated and he presented his work. He laid it out on the counter and it was just amazing. Each one of these things was professionally photographed, eight by 10 glossies, laminated with felt or velvet on the back side. So even when you touched it, the back of your fingers, you could feel it like, wow, the color just, just popped out. It was so amazing. And he gave this presentation, he talked about the school, how hard it was, and how he felt that he was among people that wanted the same dream as him and how it was so inspiring. And the thing that almost killed me was he said this. He said, if you think I'm good, everybody there is just as good, if not better. And at this point, like he was light years ahead of anything I'd seen or even imagined. And for him to say that I was like, oh my God. So strangely... His act of humility really intimidated me. When he said that, I just said, it's going to take me two years to get my portfolio together. There's no way I'm going to be ill-prepared to go to this school. It's just not going to happen. And that was part of the mindset shift that really ultimately damaged my relationship with my parents and my brother. I take the foot off the gas pedal, if you will. 
and my brother can see this. And so the expectation was here, and all of a sudden it's falling really fast. But my brother was just looking out for me. There was so much he was doing for me, with me, that I even realized at that time. So some bridges and some goodwill were being burned right now. I wasn't reading, I wasn't writing, I wasn't drawing, I wasn't doing anything. just kind of wasting the time. So we grew distant, and I started to get into arguments with his girlfriend and then him. And then a couple of things kind of culminated that changed the course of my life. One, my mom had been hearing about these tensions and how I was just not being grateful. And I was just being a little spoiled baby at that time, telling my mom how not understanding he is and how he and his girlfriend have turned against me and that nobody understands anything that I'm doing. And I was just really angry and sad. So I, I remember that night, and my mom had told me, let's not worry too much about finishing your portfolio. When you're done this year, you're going to come back, and you can go to San Jose State. And when my mom said that, my heart broke into a thousand pieces because to me, mom was always the person who, who got my back no matter what. But when she said that, she, in my mind, gave up on my dream of going to art center. I said some words, we hung up, and I just cried that night, coupled with my girlfriend and I breaking up. And I just remember like that classic fetal position on the floor next to the futon, just crying, just swallowing my, in, in my own self-pity. I felt like I wanted to, to just die. And that night, I pushed myself all the way to the edge. And I basically gave myself no way out. This is like all the bridges have been burned. You've painted yourself into a corner. Nobody believes in you. It's just all bad. Oh, the only path is forward. And I'm going to take those steps. So, so I started just becoming super, super focused. I decide, you know what? Fine. I'm going to do this. I'm going to prove to everybody I can do this. They're, they're wrong. And I hustle like I've never hustled in my life. I talked to my teacher. I said, how many pieces do I need to get into school? She told me, and I started reworking old projects, inventing new projects, and I had to get it done. And it's, I was moving really fast and just knocking it out. And there's something about hitting a goal that is addictive, that, it's, that gives you motivation and feels empowering. And when you do that, you're like, what's the next high? Like, let me finish the next thing and let me just get to the next goal and just keep doing that and doing it. When you hit bottom, there's only one direction to go, up. Chris sees emotions as cyclical. He sees the highs and lows that people live through, swinging back and forth. For so long, Chris's pendulum had remained stagnant. It swung as though moved by a light summer breeze, as he floated through life doing the bare minimum. But as the doubts of those he was closest to broke his spirit, he felt his mood swing to absolute, complete depression and defeat. Rather than wallowing in self-pity, Chris utilized these doubts as a motivation. He used their lack of faith as fuel, jetting his way out of despair, strengthening his resolve, and motivating him to reach for his goals at hyperspeed. Our lowest points, the moments when we are most vulnerable, those are the moments where we can enact the greatest change. It's not necessarily because we are hopeless. It's because in our vulnerability, we allow ourselves the room to change. Change can't happen unless you are willing to suck to make mistakes, to improve. When you have nothing to lose, making those mistakes doesn't seem so bad. So Chris changed. In an addict addicted to the high of accomplishment, Chris began to achieve more and more. So a few of my friends, we drove up 
from San Diego to Pasadena, and I dropped off my portfolio. That was it. I remember playing volleyball at my cousin's house. His little sister comes running across the street towards the park, and she's like, "Chris, there's somebody on the phone for you." I'm like, "I'm busy. I'm playing volleyball." She goes, "Okay." She runs back into the house. She comes running back again. She's like, "It's somebody from Arson." I'm like, "Duh, I gotta go. You guys drop the ball." I run into the house. I'm like, "I'm so sorry." Short of breath, she goes, "Well, I just want to let you know, you've been accepted." Wrap up the game. Go back to my house. Tell my mom, mom, I got into art center. She's like, congratulations, but I think she's like, congratulations through her teeth because she knows how expensive it is. And I, my dad kept reminding me it's as expensive as going to Stanford. He would prefer I go to Stanford, but this is art school. So I knew getting a scholarship was critical to whether or not I would be able to make this. Thankfully, they waited, reviewed the portfolio, and sent me a letter awarding me a 50% scholarship to art center. It validated that I could do this. And that there was a means to make this happen because my parents do not want to pay for this thing. Here, a clear cultural barrier between Chris and his parents is illuminated. Chris believes in his passions. He has a deep conviction that as long as he works hard enough, if he checks all the boxes, he can pull himself up by the bootstraps and fulfill his American dream. While his parents exemplify their version of this dream by their very immigration to the U.S., they had a hard time expanding their view of this credo to include Art Center alongside Stanford. Luckily, Chris's dreams panned out. Not only was he accepted to Art Center, but he was afforded a scholarship that secured his attendance. And as he would come to find, this acceptance impacted more than just his artistic abilities. So Art Center was like this very magical place, and, and and if you've been to Art Center, you would not describe it as magical. For me, it was magical. It's just a metal black box with glass and steel. But from the minute in which you walk in, you can just tell this is a place where serious design work and thinking is happening. The first few instructors I had in that very pivotal week just crystallized it for me. Like this is the place I am in the right place, and it's going to be hard. I'm scared. And I had a teacher. His name was Roland Young. His older Asian man who walked into the room, like he yelled at us. He just did everything that you would see in like art school confidential or something like that. And he was intimidating as hell. I mean, I remember one of the first things he did was when he walked in, he put down his leather briefcase, and he's like, "What are you guys doing here?" I'm like, "What? This is like the first class. What are you guys doing here? We're here to learn from you." He's like, "So what do you want from me?" We're kind of being interrogated right now. He goes, how do you know I'm just not the janitor who came in here and just look at a bunch of art kids? You can tell right then and there, he set the tone for this class. Everything that you think is going to be challenged. And I remember also calling my mom, saying, mom, I think this man, our instructor, he's a genius. He sees things that I cannot see. I'll give you an example. So I wanted to do this poster for Russia. We all got to pick a different country, and it was this kind of political idea that I had that there was this one giant hand and it was pushing downward with its index finger, and then there was this other hand, a small hand with a peace symbol, and it was going to stand up to the might of this giant hand. And I was trying to figure out a way to communicate that it wasn't being oppressed; that it was actually beating the larger oppressive hand. So it did a lot of things, but it didn't really make sense. He walks over and, like, just like one heartbeat, looks at it, he's like, 
do you mean this? And he, he grabs a pair of scissors, he cuts it a little bit, and he makes the peace finger look like a pair of scissors, and it cuts a little slice out of the oppressive finger. And I, it's just like, so, so good. I hated him that he made it so easy and that he robbed the idea from me. But that was magical, and that was a heavy, heavy standard to live up to. Slowly but surely, I started to distance myself from my classmates. And it was a competition between me and a couple of people in terms of like who would bring in the work that he would love. And that drove me. I think it was all ego. I'm not going to lie to you. I wanted to be the best because there was a place for the top and I didn't want to be at the bottom. Now this is supposed to be my thing. If I found my calling and if I can't excel at this, what am I? Every class... Every semester, I would try to measure up who's in the class and I would see like who's doing the good work. And that would be my benchmark. I needed to not just be at their level. I needed to be like four levels above them. And so what happened was the industrial designers, the people who built and designed cars, now they were super competitive. And they would sit there in school throughout the night, every night. So they're drawing cars, I'm drawing logos, I'm doing layouts, I'm trying to do ideas, I'm reading books. Whatever it is I was doing, it was good to have that energy around me and we kind of push each other. So there were so many nights that I didn't sleep, I just jumped into it because I wanted to be better. I learned a way of listening to the instructors that I think some people still struggle with today, which is when the work is being attacked, people are not attacking you. This is called feedback. External feedback is a substitute for you, your inability to reflect on your own work. So if you don't listen to that feedback and absorb it, you've not learned anything. And I kept seeing this happen time and time again. And so I started to become better than my classmates and they recognized that. So they started to ask me to help them for their homework. So at this point, I'm starting to feel like, you know, all the signals and the systems that are there, the reward signals are telling me, keep doing more of this. Keep learning. Keep devouring this information. Stay super focused and you're going to get somewhere. And that's, that's how I conducted myself. We'll be right back after this break. I'm in New York right now. And my friend Danny took me out for a New York slice at the aptly named restaurant Best Pizza. I thought it was so great, so I called them and asked, can I leave a five-star review? Hello, um, I had your pizza yesterday, and I really enjoyed it. Would it be okay if I left a five-star review on Yelp? If you what? If I left a five-star review on Yelp. Yeah, of course. It seemed like a no-brainer. Of course he wanted a five-star review. And we do, too. If you liked this podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. But I had one more question for Best Pizza. And again, I really enjoyed the pizza. Would it be okay if I came back later this week to get another slice? Yeah, of course. Again, it was a no-brainer. He answered in a New York minute. So we'd love to have you back too. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to subscribe to our podcast, Finding Founders, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks in advance. Now... Back to the podcast. From the second he walked into that austere metal building, Chris knew that he was in for a challenge. This environment promoted an aura of competition, building egos like walls till Chris could barely see the tips of his classmates' heads. They say that those who can't do teach, but here I think we see the exact opposite. Those who can do lead others by example. Chris fell into this leadership role and provided valuable information to his peers. 
This was an early indicator of his desire and drive to educate. But as Chris voraciously absorbed information, he began to realize that school was having diminishing returns. So I have to do my own work and my friends are asking me for feedback and I'm helping them out with their homework and teaching them. And now I feel like burnt out, like what is going on? So I'd start to tell people I can't do this anymore. And then some of them say to me, well, I'll pay you to teach me an hour. And so I would do that a little bit here and there for my good friends. I'm just going to help them out anyways. And I'm starting to get noticed by other people in different departments. So I'm getting freelance work. So they're like, we don't need you to teach us. Just go do it for us. And I started to develop business relationships with people. I'm starting to feel like some of my teachers don't know as much as I do, which is really weird. Not all of them were trained at Art Center. Some were trained in different places, but maybe they weren't even good students. I don't know. I'm starting to feel like I've surpassed my teachers. So this whole idea is like, why am I here? Why am I paying for this? This dream of this ultimate school with the most amazing students wasn't true. And I was just getting bitter about it. So it started to create some kind of schism in me. Like, do I want to be in school anymore? Should I be here? What do I want to do? And so as you were leaving, how did those feelings resolve themselves or did they? They they didn't. So around seventh term, which is like second to last semester at Art Center, I'm really angry at this point. I'm finding out about how money is spent, how, how little they're paying teachers, but they're like, where's all the waste going? And I don't understand why tuition is as high as it is now. But I can see like my classmates aren't that good, that this degree from the school may not mean that much. So I was staging... Uh, demonstrations and meetings with other students and it was really weird and people in the administration got word of what it is I was trying to do I got a phone call at my house from one of somebody in the administration saying Chris we see that you're not really happy you know it's a privilege to go to school and if you don't like going here you should contemplate not going here and I said to this person are you threatening me and she kind of went silent I'm like okay I call my uncle who's an attorney, and I asked him, what are my rights here? And they, if they threaten you to throw you out of school for expressing your opinion, they're going to have a lawsuit on their hands. And I was thinking about calling the news channel and just talking about this, just blowing it up, just total like a drama queen, right? And something saved me from all of this. I got a job offer. So I go to work for this ad agency, and they take good care of me. They're flying me back and forth from Seattle to L.A. And I had an amazing boss. His name is Kevin Jones. And although I came in with a classmate of mine, we're starting at the same level, he quickly moves me up really fast. He's like, I want to work with you. He offers to pay me double my salary, which is ridiculous. And I asked him why. Why would you do this for me? Because I'm not even an app person. And he said something to me. I remember this. He said that in my world, writers are a dime a dozen. We can find them everywhere. But somebody with your talent, with your eye and your design and your work ethic, it's a rare thing because you work so hard that you put everybody here on notice. So I just like having you around just so those other people have a standard to look up to. But there was something else that was happening here. In the world of advertising, you work really hard on one thing for a really long time. So there was a lot of energy expended to make a few things. And I just, I wasn't used to that level of output. I wanted to make more things. I wanted to get my hands dirty and I want more exciting projects and assignments. I think I'm unemployable, to be honest. I've never worked anywhere for a very long time. 
The novelty of paid work soon wore off, and Chris realized he's unemployable. I think what he means by that is he doesn't enjoy boundaries. His mind is boundless, and so is his work ethic. So any structure that isn't self-imposed would be limiting. He wanted to do so much more, and the only way that would be possible was if Chris started his own company. Right around this time, my uncle calls me up and he's like, I know one of your dreams is to start a company. I have a business partner. We'd like to help you start a company. Well, things worked out. We start a company. And we got work mostly because of those relationships from the ad agency that I used to work at, from the music label I used to work at, and from a few places that I freelance around town. They just sent me work. Like, we don't care. If you could just do the work from where you're at, I don't care. I have a budget for it. We'll just send you the work. And that created this opportunity that I had more work than I could possibly do. It was really fun. It was easy. It was in our wheelhouse. And so just kept doing the work. It's like, I'm making money. This is good. And one opportunity leads to another. I get more work. And it's just, that's how it goes. I bring in my friends from school. Jesse, my friend Michelle Doherty, who is also a classmate of mine. And one other friend, Vanessa Marzaroli. So basically it was me and like five women. And my friends would joke, it's like, Kristen, it's harem of women designers. You know, what are you doing? What's going on? And I was like, this is fantastic. We're doing this work and we're having the time of our lives. And so we did this work and it was, it was fantastic. At 22, Chris had not only proven himself to his teachers and classmates, but also to influential clients. As clients clambered to work with him, his peers flocked to work for him. Chris describes all of this success as a surprise. It seems like the setup for most of these stories goes something like this. I was working hard, then this guy was like, here's a bunch of money, and I was like, okay. There's this nonchalance in his explanations that I think originate from a love of the work. He's so focused on creating something great that all the success that comes with great work is just gravy. He is surprised by success, accepts that success, then moves on. Unfortunately, this success would be finite. Both clients had decided they don't need us anymore. And so the stream of money that was coming in that was uh, affording me to keep my friends employed went away. I told my friends like, oh my God, we have no more work, ladies. We have no more work. And I remember, I think this is around October. And I told them, look, unless something changes, unless somebody books, I'm out of money in December. I'm going to pay you now till then. And after that, we're done. You mentioned that these two clients left and it was like outside of your control. And you like just played it until you had to stop. Like, do you think there was anything that you could have done differently? What happened was, and I, I learned this like uh, two years ago, it's called the new broom. When the owners or the, the people in control, the executives leave, new people come in and they want to sweep out all the old teams. And I knew that they were retiring. I didn't know how to respond to that. I should have taken out the new people to lunch and to have a meeting with them and saying, hey, we don't want to drop any continuity. Of course, I know you have to look at other options. I didn't know anything about client services and account management back then. I was like, yeah, continue to work with us, right? Chris learned that current success does not predict future success. He had the talent. He had the company. He had the right entrepreneurial spirit. Unfortunately, he no longer had the clients. 
Chris fell prey to the trap that many successful companies fall prey to, complacency. Having achieved such a high degree of success early on left Chris feeling strong, unconcerned with growth, or even feeling the need to schmooze to new clients. But Chris had persistence on his side. He wouldn't give up. Like, I think four days after everybody left, I got a phone call for a job, a car commercial for Buick. I was like, wow, this is really cool. Did the car commercial. That led to another thing, led to another thing. So we get through this and we we hit a little kind of nice streak. And we just grew and grew and grew. So we moved out of downtown Los Angeles, bought a house in Venice and just outgrew that. And then moved into another office, outgrew that. And we just kept moving. I was like, what is going on? And in the early 2000s, my God, the money was crazy. It really was. There were just like this dot-com money was flying like crazy. And I got so much work back then. I would just tell my, my executive producer at that time, I don't have time. I'm stressed out. Just double the budget. Get rid of them. So if they said they had $60,000 to do it, she would just turn around and say 120. And guess what? They approved it. So I made more money in the late 90s and early 2000s than I had any other point in my life. So we're just growing and things are awesome. And I'm finding my voice and, and finding my focus. And we're winning awards. We're doing work. We're being published nationally, internationally. People are recognizing us. And at that time, there were only a handful of companies who did what we did at the caliber in which we did it. So we're in demand. What happens? The market gets flooded. The demand for the work goes away and supply far outstrips demand. The whole industry is in a funky place and it's been in a funky place for a long time. Commercial work, it's becoming just a chore now. The hoops you have to get through, the budgets are shrinking, the, the creative briefs are getting more conservative. And we know this because people aren't watching commercials anymore. The whole landscape, the media landscape is changing we see some of our clients going out of business. So when your clients go out of business, that's a pretty clear signal. You better wake up and change your plan. I remember talking to my executive producer at that time, a person who worked for me. I said, we have to design a future where we're not doing commercial work anymore. We got to go client direct. We got to do different things. But as we were doing that, I'm starting to dabble in creating content for YouTube. Although we had a rough start, as, as always, we put out a video that started to resonate and connect with people. I talked about design, identity systems, and branding, showed my portfolio, and those videos got a lot of attention, relatively speaking. So I'm starting to feel something here. And at this point, I'm like 15 years out of school. I'd been teaching for 10 years at that point, and I continue to teach. And I'm thinking, there's a new model that's emerging. Maybe I can make it work. I can switch from teaching one to a few to one to many in an infinitely scalable model. And that's the business model I've built now. We've produced to date, I think, over 800 videos on YouTube. We built a community, an international following around the pursuit of this creative life. So then we started to formulate that into some kind of mission statement, which is to teach a billion people how to make a living doing what they love. Chris learned from his mistakes. He saw the capital drying up again, saw his competition going out of business, and knew that he had reached a pivot point. Chris saw how the world of advertisement and the internet was evolving and knew that he must transform along with it. He knew he had to create a symbiotic relationship with these emerging mediums. Combining the skills he had honed since his time at Art Center, Chris scaled his educational platform to be accessible to, well, anyone in the world. Chris remains dedicated to his students, both those currently watching his videos and the generations to come. 
I think we all need somebody out there who kind of is relatable to us, who's doing the thing that we thought we couldn't do, that we were told never to do or think about. And if we can see that person doing it, maybe we can make it real for somebody else. And that's why I'm so passionate about teaching people to bring them from that space of creativity into the space of business and entrepreneurship to help them get through the scariest parts that maybe in that way I could help many generations of people do the thing that I was so fortunate to get from being in the right place at the right time being able to have a new home in America and being able to have the success that I've had clearly Chris feels a responsibility for future generations and he has some advice for anyone looking to embark on their own journey I don't know when that trigger point is going to be for each person, and it's going to be different. For me, it was just my mom giving up on my dreams, my brother and I having a falling out, and feeling very alone and isolated. And sometimes you can turn that misery, that pain, into something positive. The other thing I want to tell you is, look, if you want to achieve anything in your life, be clear about what it is that you want. Make it very concrete. Be specific. Make it bound by time. Be so clear in that you can see it, you can touch it, and you can taste it in your mind. That gives you the blueprint. So many people I know stress out because they don't know what to do. Because they have so many things competing for their attention. They say to me, I have too many priorities. I said, no, you don't. A priority is one thing. Pick one thing. And if you don't know where to start, pick something that you can do. Pick something small and do that. Give yourself a small win. Tell yourself a different story that you're capable, that you could do things, that you're smart enough, that you're good enough. So develop those habits, and then all of a sudden, one day you're going to look up, and you're going to be shocked at how far you've come. Chris is a leader in his field. He's at the top. We've heard him grow from a kid ignorant of the potential in his artistry to a teenager excited to hone his craft, to a young adult keen to build a company, to a man trying to change the world. I feel that a lot of times we view successful people as having a vision from birth. But it took a lot of time for Chris to even realize his craft existed. I mentioned it before, but Chris is nonchalant in his success. He rolls with the punches. He adapts. The way he tells his story reflects how he maneuvers his business and his life. He sees opportunity and accepts it, even when it's hard. Even when opportunity might mean we have to temporarily fail, pivot, learn. But that's what opportunity often looks like. It encourages us to reassess as we look towards the future. So look at your future. What will you learn next? Thank you so much for listening and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter by going to findingfounders.co or check us out on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram at Finding Founders Podcast. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Adrian Tapia leads the editing team with Matt Fernandez and Sophia Donner. Sophie Davies leads the writing team with Dan O'Nissen, Joyce Mock, and Elizabeth Bowen. Sahej Sandhu leads the outreach team with Jessica Lynn, Sasha Ivanova, and Roma Bedeker. 
Our design team is Phoebe Sajor, Annie Liu, Rachel Dang, James Barton, and Steven Sai. Our events team is Maddie Bozen and Dharma Shah. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. Mm-hmm.